0: Hey everybody, this is Krista Stilwell, communications assistant at LFCN. Thanks for listening to the podcast. It's a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus who join with God in the remaking of all things. We pray that what you hear is a blessing and helps you join God today. If our church can help you and serve you in any way, please drop us a line at 765-447-7655. Enjoy the sermon. If you would, for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter six. Proverbs chapter chapter six, reading verses six through eleven. God's word says this. Go to the ant, you lazy person. Observe its ways and grow wise. The ant has no commander, officer, or ruler. Even so, it gets its food in summer. Will you lie down? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to lie down, and poverty will come on you like a prowler, destitution like a warrior. This is God's word for us this morning. You can be seated. So in that passage of Scripture and in others throughout the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs is describing this category called the sluggard. And the sluggard will do anything to avoid work. Anything and any way possible, they will do that if that way leads to them avoiding having to work. So the sluggard avoids. And if you read through the book of Proverbs, there's a whole list of excuses that the sluggard gives as to why they shouldn't work, including And it's supposed to be funny, including this one section where someone is given an opportunity to work and their excuse is, I can't and I won't because there is a lion outside of my tent. And there was not a lion outside of their tent, but the point was they would find anything or make up anything in order to avoid doing any ounce of work. What they do want to do is just to sleep. They just want to rest. In fact, Proverbs describes the sluggard not just as enjoying their bed, but as being chained to it. They're bound to it. They can't get up and go to work. The sluggard avoids work. But Proverbs also talks about another category called the cheat. I'll just read a couple of verses to illustrate that. From Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord detests... Dishonest scales, but delights in an accurate weight. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. False weights and measures, the Lord detests them both. So this is a cheat. A cheat is willing to use unjust measures and unequal weights. Which means this person is willing to cut corners. They're willing to cheat morally and relationally. They want to get what they want so badly that they're willing to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish it, even if that means that they cheat Or they use unequal weights and measures in their way to get there. So I thought it might be fun to kind of illustrate in modern day who these two characters are. The sluggard and the cheat. And as I was reading through the book of Proverbs, all of the passages that had to deal with the sluggard, I just kept getting... In, in my mind, and this is a little bit of a dated reference, but I think many of you will know this, I kept getting in my mind the character, the dude from The Big Lebowski. The dude from The Big Lebowski. You, if you ever seen The Big Lebowski, um, it's, listen, don't go out and go, go watch it. You know, I think it's funny, but that's just between Jesus and me. <laughs> uh, but the dude in The Big Lebowski is this ex-hippie slacker. He's an ex-hippie slacker. And this is what he aspires to in life. His aspirations include sleeping, bowling, and drinking cocktails with his friends. And he's willing to do whatever necessary, whatever necessary, to protect his sleep and his bowling and his alcohol problem. He's not willing to let anything interfere with that. He is chained to his bed. In fact, he's willing to even risk his health and not have any money to pay his bills just so he can continue in the lifestyle of drinking, bowling, and sleeping. His goal is the life of leisure. That's the sluggard. It's the dude. And on the other end of the spectrum, the cheat, I think it's Bernie Madoff. Do you you remember Bernie Madoff? Bernie Madoff is the Wall Street executive. At one time, he was uh, the the chief operating officer of of NASDAQ. And he uh, has confessed to being a part of the biggest Ponzi scheme in American and maybe even world history to the tune of $68.4 billion he ripped off his clients. He was willing to use unjust weights and unjust measures, willing to cut corners, willing to leave a wake of bodies and ruined financial futures behind him in his effort to climb to the top on the backs of those he was taking advantage of. That's the cheat. But here's the deal. The sluggard and the cheat have a relationship with work that diagnoses what they worship in their hearts. And when I use the term worship, what comes to your mind is like gathered in a room, singing songs, listening to a sermon, moments together in a large group. But I'm not just talking about that because when the Bible talks about worship, it's not just talking about things that happen when we sing, it's talking about the direction of our affections, what we love what we admire. When we worship something biblically, what we're doing is we're submitting ourselves to it and we're giving over our lordship to it and our response to it is an act of admiration and worship. Worship speaks to the deepest longings of our heart, the deepest desires of our soul. It's what our affections are based on and hinged on. It's what we run to to name us and to identify us. And so for the sluggard, work is a barometer of their worship because they're willing to sacrifice money, food, to get what they want. They want recreation and sleep. And they'll do anything. They'll sacrifice anything to get it. And what the sluggard wants about anything else is comfort. The comfort of play. What the sluggard wants more than anything else is the relaxation of their bed. And... Work for the sluggard is a compass that points to what they worship. And what they worship is a life of leisure to avoid the pain of this world. And the cheat is not a lot different. They're just willing to cut corners. The cheat is willing to risk freedom. They'll, they'll go to jail even to get money and power and position. And I, I'm not sure that if we took the dude and Bernie Madoff and put them in an office environment or stuck them in a restaurant. I'm not sure that they would hang out together in real life. I'm not sure they would be buds who text each other to go watch the game. And I don't know if the sluggards in our community and the cheats in our community would meet up regularly. But here's how they're connected. Work always points in our life to what we worship. Work And worship can't be separated. And the way that we approach work is telling us something. It reveals something about our hearts. About our hearts. It's a compass that reveals to us where we are turning and where we are going for our satisfaction. For our joy. For our delight. And so when the book of Proverbs talks about work... It talks about these two categories that are broken as a warning. Saying, don't do this. This is the path of foolishness. And if you follow down this path, you'll end up in pain. If you're a sluggard and you, you, your, your, your heart of worship revealed in your work ethic of, sl- of sluggishness, it will reveal itself as a life of pain. If you're a cheat, it might look promising. It might look like the way to get ahead, but ultimately you will end up in the life of pain. And so the book of Proverbs says don't do that, but it also says there's another option. And here's the other option. The other option is that God wants to give his people a framework for work as a means of worshiping, as a means of following hard after God. So here's the beautiful part of the Christian story that we often forget. In the beginning, before Genesis chapter 3 happened and human hearts were turned towards sin, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God painted this beautiful vision of what it looked like to worship and to work. In the beginning, before there was any sin, God stamps work with divine dignity Out of nothing, this is what God does, out of nothing, God creates, he makes, he produces everything that exists by speaking it into being. It was this combination of artistry and engineering that came together in the work of God in the very beginning It was like God merged IU and Purdue and created this beautiful thing. The very first act of God was opening his mouth and speaking. He worked in the beginning. And God stamped divine dignity on work because God, who is perfect, actually works. So in the beginning, God steps up to the plate as a mathematician and as a poet. God, left brain, right brain, creates everything out of nothing. And in that work of creation, he stamped dignity on every form of labor, of human labor, that contributes to the common good. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, the scripture says that God stoops down and forms this 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 formation in, in dirt and breathes into it. And out of the formation that God does with his hands, as his hands mix together with the dirt, humanity is created. So now it's not just that God is working with his brain or working with his mouth. God works with his hands. It's all so good and beautiful, God is saying to his people. Not just for us to be thinkers or speakers, but to produce a livelihood and to do work and labor with the hands that God has given to us. And in that moment, in those first two chapters of the book of Genesis, God is stamping dignity on labor and work. He's saying the poet's life, who speaks words and worlds are created, and the gardener's life, who gets dirty with his hands and tends and prunes, both of those things are beautiful and valuable and good. In fact, the whole spectrum of labor from the baker to the banker All of the pursuits that work for the common good have their ultimate root in the God who starts working in the beginning. God, you need to hear this, God puts dignity on your work. And God sets a rhythm to work. There's a rhythm. There's a daily rhythm. And there's a weekly rhythm. Here's the day, daily rhythm. So during those six days of creation that are listed at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, there's this daily rhythm. So God wakes up and gets to work. And he works all day creating. But at the end of the day, he does something really interesting. He stops and he rests. He ceases the labor during the day so that he can reflect on what was made and created that day. It's like God works and works and works and works and works and works and works, and then the day is over, and he stops, and he rests, and he looks and pauses and thinks back over what was accomplished. And in that place of reflection, God says, this was good. This was good. This was a good day. This was a fruitful day. This was a day of productivity. So the daily rhythm that God gives to his people for how work happens during the day is that you work. And then at the end of the day, you don't work some more. You don't blur work with your time of rest where there, so like there's no end to the labor. You stop, and you rest, and you reflect. There's a daily rhythm to work. And then there's this weekly rhythm. And so in the beginning, when God created, he gives us this daily rhythm. He also gives us a weekly rhythm. And God institutes this thing called a Sabbath, he ceases from his labor for a full day and does nothing except rests. And here's what's really interesting. Have you ever thought, why did God do that? Like like all of the managers, all of the bosses in the world right now, what you're thinking is, you work one more day, you eat, increase productivity and look, your levels of production by one more day, you can make more of the things, you can sell more of the stuff, profits will increase. You take a day off, you shut it down for one day, you're losing opportunity. It's an opportunity cost. Or, you know, or maybe you thought to yourself, like, why, why does God do that? Like, does he just get really tired? Does God, God just, like, need a nap? Just, like, needs a little bit of a break? Needs to shut it down. You know, God can only handle so much. God needs his day off, too. This is God. Like, it would be one thing if God was like, hey, I want to get this thing up and running as fast as I can. So I've got seven days to do that. Let's just get it going, get it going, get it going, get it going, get it going. And when I create humans, I'll understand that humans, like, they, they can't handle so much. You know, they, they get tired and sleepy. Need a little Nappy. We'll just let them have a little break. But for me, like, let's just keep it going. But that's not how it works. God works for six days and creates for six days. And there's a rhythm to that day work, 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 work. End of the day, stop and reflect and rest. Do that six times. And then the seventh time, nothing. And it's not because God gets tired. In Himself, God is infinite energy. Within himself. He gets to the end of the work and he rests because he's revealing something about the nature of work. Daily rhythms, weekly rhythms of work are part of God's plan to restrain chaos from the world. Work too much or work too little and chaos bubbles up. But God has this dignity, this value that he puts on work. God gives to us a rhythm for work. And then there's something he does next that's really generous. It says that God creates man and woman in his image and he shares his work with them so that the work of God now becomes the work for people. In Genesis chapter 1, 27 through 27, Through 28, God gives humans this really robust job description. And it's not just about procreation. It's a command to fill the world with beauty and order so that our work points back to God as the creator. And then God puts them in the garden and he says to them this. He says, work it and keep it. Work it and keep it. And here's the truth. Sometimes we believe that work is something that came into the world after the fall. That like before sin, all everybody did was just lay around. They were like the dude chained to the bed. And they just bowled. And they hung out with their buds. And that's all all they did. But if if that's our understanding of what peak humanity looks like, First of all, we're foolish. Second of all, we're robbing ourselves of something essential that it means to be human. What it means to be human is that God has shared with us his work in the world. And part of our divine calling is the opportunity for us to be a co-creator, a participant with God's movement in the world by doing something fruitful with our head, with our mouth, with our hands. Work is in the Bible before sin ever introduces, or is ever introduced into the scene, work is not a consequence of sin. Work was there from the very, very beginning. And God gives work to human beings because work is an important part of what it means to be human. I was sharing um, this quick anecdote uh, Back uh, as we were getting ready to pray for this worship service, so I, I was um, researching work today and 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 just and just thinking through all of this how I wanted to communicate it, and I stumbled upon some really interesting, some some really interesting information that I think kind of points and, and highlights what I'm trying to communicate today. So this is actually really surprising to me. Um, you walk, uh, you live in Lafayette, and you walk into like rural King. Or a tractor supply company, and some of you will fight out amongst yourself which one is the better store. And at both of those places, you will notice, like, let's say to yourself, Hey, I need to get some work done in my yard or on my land. Or I go to a job that requires a certain kind of workwear. And you would say to yourself, I need I need to buy some of that because. You know, winter's coming, or or whatever, and so you go and you buy what you get. Buy a Carhartt jacket, or you buy Carhartt coveralls. Well, this is fascinating to me. One of the most popular brands in Brooklyn, New York, today, is Carhartt, and one of the most popular things for people who live in urban environments to buy. Today is a big ax. So imagine yourself, you're in Brooklyn. You're walking through the streets. I don't even know what Brooklyn looks like. You're walking through the streets of Brooklyn. I would imagine it looks a little different than Lafayette. I don't know. You're walking through the streets of Brooklyn, and there you see in front of you people who look like they should live in Lafayette or Tippecanoe County, but they don't. They live in Brooklyn, and here are all of these people who work in office environments or office jobs, and they're looking at spreadsheets all day long, and what are they wearing? They're wearing Carhartt coveralls, and they go back to their apartment, and hanging on their wall is this gleaming, beautiful axe. They're never going to chop wood in their entire life. They're never going to actually use that thing, but it's there. Why? Why? What is up with this phenomenon? Well, it's partly because millennial hipsters are crazy and they have way too much expendable income. But I think the other reality is this. There is this longing and this connection within the human spirit to be, condu- to be connected in some way with work. With work. So how is it that we can somehow create this connection? We buy the Carhartt or we buy the axe. Work ha- is something within us about what it means to be human because God gave it to us. Before sin ever entered the picture, God commissioned us and said, Keep it and work it. But Adam and Eve didn't find their identities in their jobs. They found their identity in the God who gave them their job. So their value, their comfort, their worth, their security was not in the work that they produced. No, their fruitfulness, their work flowed out of their relationship with the God who gave their work to them. So work is not what makes us human. Work is one of the blessings of being human. What you do, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes on Sunday, what you do is a holy calling from God. The work that you do with your mind, with your mouth, with your hands, no matter how glamorous or how menial, is all a part of God's good and holy world. And the most sacred time of your week is not just the hour that you spend here on a Sunday morning. The testimony of Scripture is that all of life, including our work, can be sanctified with the very presence of God. So in the beginning, God works. And work is beautiful. Work is holy. And then it all goes wrong. In Genesis chapter 3, humanity breaks apart. And sin enters into the picture. And we fall. And as a result of our fall, work Falls and is broken too. And God has this conversation with Adam and with Eve, and it's pretty clear that the work that they had always known would never be the work that they would experience again. And so God looks at the woman and shares with her one of the worst verses in all of Scripture that because of their fallenness and because of the brokenness in this relationship, That the work that only she can do, the unique work that she can offer to the world, her labor would now be incredibly painful. And he looks at Adam and he says, your work will also be hard. He says, you're going to work this earth and you're going to try to get food out of it. And it's going to be really tough because instead of the ground cooperating with your work, now that ground is going to fight against you. It used to just open up for you, but now you'll have to work it and it will fight you. And so for every single human being now who lives on this earth, there's some times, right, where Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, we work and work and work and work and work, and it seems futile. It seems pointless. Like we get to the end of the day where we're supposed, to ref- we're supposed to reflect on it and it doesn't fill us with that was fruitful or that was productive. We say to ourselves, it's all vanity. Like that was meaningless. That was nothing. And if you ever feel like that, your great, 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 great grandfather Adam felt that way too because he would work the ground and work the ground and work the ground. And instead of the ground being fruitful as the result of his work, the ground would produce thistles and thorns. Sometimes it's futile, and it will always be hard. And as a result, we tend to overwork or underwork. And so when we overwork, we're just going to break our back so that we can ensure some sort of Production that will have enough to sustain us and will sacrifice whatever we need in order to get there. And we not, might not be cheating or cutting corners, but all overworkers who try to deal with the problem of the futility of our work in the broken world, all of us are willing to have unjust scales. Because every time I overwork because I'm so hungry to produce or I'm so hungry for fruitfulness to happen in my life, I have unjust scales on in order to get what I need. And when I work in a way that neglects my spouse or neglects my kids, when I'm slavishly tied to that device of technology in my hand that I carry home with me, even when I'm not at work, when my whole life becomes produce, 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 I'm a cheat in the sense of the Proverbs say because I'm willing to cheat my spouse out of their husband and my kids out of their dad. Overwork is a symptom of a heart that wants to create things to worship and those things are not God. And when we underwork, we're doing the exact same thing. The underworker Doesn't say, man, I'm going to undo the curse of futility by trying really hard. The underworker says, I'm going to avoid the pain of the curse by not working at all. And so the underworker looks at the thorns and the thistles that make it hard to work. And instead of working and working and working, they say, man, it's too difficult. I won't even try. Just be a 35 year old that's kind of coasting because I don't want to deal with the pain and I don't want to deal with the inconvenience to work this ground. I'll do what is easy. I'll worship the gods of comfort and recreation. The overworker has a worship problem, the underworker has a worship problem. The sluggard and the cheat, two sides of the same coin. Here's the remedy. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord. Your plans will succeed. Commit your work to the Lord. And your plans will succeed. What the writer of the book of Proverbs is continually calling us back to is this understanding that we work based out of our worship or that our worship determines our work and how is it that we actually worship God we take all that we have and all that we are and we commit it to him we give it over And what the writer of the book of Proverbs is saying is, if we want to be wise in our work, if we want to work according to the grain of the universe, if we want to work as God has always intended us to, give it over to him. Commit it to him. Treat your work as your worship. Out of your worship, work. Commit your work to the Lord. That's step number one. Step number two is the byproduct. So we don't think in our our hearts, in our our minds, hey, I want to succeed. In order to succeed, i got to commit my work to the Lord. That is using worship as a means to the end. It is elevating the reward of God over the work that God has given to us, and it's flip-flopped. What God is essentially saying is, give it all over to me. As that happens, I will see to it that your plans will succeed. It's not, I want to succeed, therefore I'm going to give God my work. That's, again, using God to give us what we want. It's God, here's my work. It's yours. I've committed it all to you. And I'm going to trust that your word is true, that as I give this over to you as an act of worship, that the plans that I have or the plans you have for me will prove themselves to be successful, fruitful, productive in your eyes.